Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, probably not a place you thought we would turn to first when we're just a week or so away from Christmas. You know, as many of us know firsthand, x-rays, CT scans, and MRIs are, are very important. We should marvel at the fact that an x-ray can take a picture inside our bodies and show us whether it's a broken bone or not. Even more, we should marvel at MRIs which show us, well not us, we don't get to look at them, but they show somebody a 3D image and they can essentially dissect an organ without dissecting it and show a cross-section of what's going on there, maybe even showing blood flowing through it or no blood where it should be flowing. A whole other way of analyzing the body is through blood work. It's amazing that scientists can look at our blood, test our blood, and tell us things wrong with us that we didn't know were wrong with us. You couldn't see it from the outside. Well, this isn't a public service announcement to encourage you to get checked out in 2014. My point is that these are all important ways of getting below the surface, at analyzing at a level that's more than obvious and more than skin deep. I think we need to do something similar at Christmas time with Christmas. For many, Christmas is simply a tree, lights, presents, maybe some family tradition, certainly family time. Maybe some extra parties, good food, good cheer, but that's it. For others, Christmas is more religious. Maybe it involves a church service. Maybe there's a manger scene on the mantle. Maybe there's talk in the home about baby Jesus and the birth in Bethlehem. Maybe there's wonder and intrigue at the, the star and the shepherds and the wise men and the whole manger scene. Several years ago, the saying, Jesus is the reason for the season, was popular. You'd see it on bumper stickers. Uh, you'd see it, I think, on yard signs even. And of course, Jesus is the reason for the season. That, that's a good thing to say. It's not a wrong thing to say at all. But why is he the reason for the season? Why do we have a season for him? Why is he the reason for it? Who is he? Can we x-ray this? Can we get an MRI over here? Can we see what's going on in Bethlehem at the manger scene? Can we see why there's this thing called Christmas? Who is he and what did he do? Of course, this is far from just a question about Christmas. This shouldn't be an investigation that we do just once a year, kind of like I do when any holiday pops up. You know, it's, uh, it's D-Day, and so I'll go on Wikipedia and look up some more or get a book on, on D-Day that I don't have and, and, and read a bit about it. Or, you know, Arbor Day comes along, and I scratch my head and say, what's Arbor Day again? And I get on Wikipedia, and I look, and, and then I forget about it for a whole 364 more days. We shouldn't do that with Christmas because we shouldn't do that with Christ. This is not just a year-long question and pursuit. It's an eternal one. And it has eternal significance. 
Who was he? Why was he born? What does it matter? One way we can get below the surface of Christmas and the birth of Jesus is to explore the names by which Jesus was called. For us today in 21st century America, names don't mean a whole lot. Many of us have read in a a name book what our name means. My name means Little King, I'm embarrassed to say. It was kind of a little inroad, though, when I met my wife and said I was Little King, and I know her name meant Little Princess, and she went, ooh. It's the only time it's ever been important. Most of us know what our names mean, but it has almost zero significance for our living. It doesn't represent who we are. It doesn't mean we do certain things based on my moniker, Little King. No. But in ancient cultures, it was more like that. They, they did, especially in Hebrew culture, think of the name as a window into the person. It would be almost prophetic in its, in its properties, who this person will be, what he'll be like, what they'll do. Or it'll have historical significance after they live. You, you read back parts of their life through the name and the meaning of the name. And of course, it's most true of Jesus Christ than anyone else in history who bore all kinds of names and titles and each utterly rich with significance. Maybe more significant than what others named Jesus is how he referred to himself. What name or title did Jesus use most often when speaking of himself? By far, it was the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Over 80 times we see the name or title Son of Man in the New Testament. Of course, the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell some of the same stories in different ways, so there's overlap there. But even still, Jesus uses the name or title Son of Man on 50 different occasions. 50 different occasions. And he's the only one. He's the only one in Scripture who uses that language of him. Everyone else in the gospel accounts calls Jesus something else. So if names had more significance in Jesus' time than they do today, and if Jesus uses one name for himself more than all others combined, and if he's basically the only one who uses it, we got to ask, what does it mean? What does the Son of Man mean? Do you see how this can be an MRI into the whole scene? It can be an x-ray of what's going on below the surface. Many have thought and taught that the Son of Man is just a simple term to reflect Jesus' humanity and his humility. He's a son of a man. Like we would say, just a dude. He's just a guy, almost hinting at him preferring anonymity. Even Charles Spurgeon, the great Charles Spurgeon, who I often quote affirmingly, he said this about Jesus as the Son of Man, and I don't think he's right. He said, he hath a thousand gorgeous titles, resplendent as the throne of heaven, but he careth not to use them to express his humility and to let us see the lowliness, he calls not himself the Son of God, but he speaks of himself evermore as the Son of Man. 
Well, Jesus certainly was human, and he certainly was humble, and a lot of the New Testament reflects that. But that's not what Jesus was communicating when he referred to himself as the Son of Man. To find out what Jesus meant, we have to go, well, to several places in the Bible this morning. That's not typical for a Sunday morning here. Usually we have one main passage and then we just quote from a few other passages elsewhere. But we have this one anchor passage. This morning will be a little bit more like a a buffet of sorts. I think that'll serve this particular study best since Son of Man is all over the Bible, uh, especially the New Testament. So that's the first warning here. Uh, We'll be all over the Bible today. Feel free to flip through in your Bible or just note the, the verses on the screen behind me. Most of them will be up there. A second warning is that we're gonna go deep. We're interested not in a glance of Jesus or a look towards Christmas, but even more than an x-ray, an an MRI. We're looking for multi-dimension here to this life, to this person, and to its significance. It'll be deep. And a third warning related to that is this may feel a bit like a raw Bible study for a long time. It might feel like just biblical data or or information or or, or just, just studying for studying's sake. Hopefully at the end, though, we'll get clearer about the significance of the Son of Man in the coming of Jesus and what it means for us today as his people and as his creation. We should think of Jesus as the Son of Man in three main ways. First, Jesus, the Son of Man, establishes God's kingdom He establishes God's kingdom, and that's where we go to, that's when we go to Daniel 7. Look at Daniel 7, and starting in verse 9, we'll get a a picture of heaven. Daniel is seeing a vision of God's throne room. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God, or God the Father specifically. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued out and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now, you've got to know what came before in this chapter. Before this, Daniel saw four beasts, ugly, hideous, crude beasts, who represented four different kingdoms or, or nations or peoples at that time. They were wicked kingdoms. They overtook nation after nation, people after people. God portrays them in the symbolic form as nasty beasts. And now we have this courtroom scene. Heaven, there's the Ancient of Days before his throne. The books are open. Judgment's about to take place. And then in verse 12, we read that their dominion was taken away. That's eventually what's going to happen. Their dominion was taken away. And now we come to the Son of Man. Look at verse 13 in Daniel 7. Daniel sees this. 
I saw in the night visions, this is still the courtroom scene of heaven, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is approved of God. He's God's man. He receives all authority to enact God's plan for salvation and for judgment. He will bring judgment on all evil. And he will establish God's rule and his reign in an everlasting kingdom. Sort of like heaven and earth meeting together. And worship will be established. Notice in verse 14, all peoples will serve him will worship him, they'll obey him, they'll follow him. He receives this kingdom from God, the Ancient of Days, and and yet also, notice back in verse 13, he comes with clouds of heaven. Coming with clouds, that's a symbol of deity often in Scripture. God often rides in on clouds. He often makes his presence known with clouds and fire, like on Mount Sinai. Or in Psalm 97, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. So we have here in Daniel 7, ancient of days, distinct from a son of man. And yet, deity is reflected in both of them. It would be a head-scratcher if we didn't have the New Testament. But we know who this is referring to. This is God the Father and his Son. Jesus is the Son of Man. So when Jesus says anything, the Son of Man came to, he has Daniel 7 in mind. Far from being a title of anonymity or meekness or humility, the Son of Man is a title that springs from God's very throne room where God himself thunders as he hands over the keys to the kingdom, and to the earth, to his son, who bears all of God's authority. I mean, look at the words used there in Daniel 7. This is what we should think of when we hear son of man, dominion, glory. They serve him. Global worship. What's in a name? A whole lot in this case. When Jesus says he's the son of man, he's pointing back to this. This passage of Daniel 7 goes on to say that he, Jesus, the son of man, will give his kingdom, verse 22, to the saints of the Most High. He receives it and he gives it. The saints of the Most High are included in all of this. And all of this is wrapped up when Jesus uses Son of Man in the New Testament. All of this is reflected when the New Testament writers refer to Jesus' reign and his power and his authority and his victory, his supremacy. 
All of this is born out of the way the New Testament speaks of the kingdom of God. This is part of what we should think of when we read in the New Testament, for instance, John the Baptist before Jesus and his ministry, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent. It's a kingdom that's not like the beastly kingdoms of this world. There's a contrast in Daniel 7. You've got the beastly kingdoms of the world that are going down, and then there's this eternal one of the righteous son of man, and it will rise up, and it will do all God's will. You say, well, then where is it? Well, where is it then? Well, Jesus said in John 18... To Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not like the beastly kingdoms of this world. Jesus said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. You can't point to it. You can't touch it. You can't destroy it. They won't say, look, here it is. Or there, there it is. No, Jesus said, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's here. You can't see it, but it's here. God's reign and rule has come to earth in Jesus, the son of man, God's man. And through grace, he brings it to his people. We enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just like Daniel 7 said, he will give it to the saints of the Most High. So what's going on in that manger scene in Bethlehem? Well, it's not just a story that's rich with mystery and intrigue or maybe even symbolism. It's far from just a birth, even a real birth. It's far from just the birth of an important person. Someone will go on to teach fascinating new things, a revolutionary of sorts. It's not the beginning of a movement. And Jesus is not just a king. What's going on in Bethlehem is the Son of Man. The king of the universe is bringing God's rule and reign into view, and it's going global. Things will never be the same. There's no going back. It will only become clearer, not less clearer. And only Christ's kingdom will endure. It's a kingdom which cannot be shaken can't say that of any other kingdom, including the good old U.S. of A. You can't say, ah, we'll be here forever. A thousand years. It's It's a given. We're the world's superpower. So was Rome and many others. So were those four mentioned in Daniel 7, those beasts who were destroyed. We have a a kingdom which cannot be shaken in Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence in awe. Another layer deeper, we see how this kingdom 
comes into being. How will God establish his kingdom? Secondly, Jesus, the son of man, sacrifices his life. He sacrifices his life. That's in Matthew 16. Would you turn there? Matthew 16 in your Bibles. It's another son of man passage, another one that gives us a a window into what son of man means. And son of man means that Jesus is the Messiah. It means that he's the son of God. It means he's the promised one. And it also means he's going to die. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, which wouldn't really fit with Daniel 7, right? Daniel 7 talked about much more than John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still, doesn't fit Daniel 7. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Of course, Peter could have said more. He didn't quote Daniel 7. He didn't talk about the ancient of days, handing the kingdom over to the Son of Man. But he got pretty close here in identifying the Son of Man, which Jesus calls himself, with the Christ or the Messiah, the promised one who is also the Son of God. Next week, we'll talk about how Jesus is the Son of God. Let's read on. In the next couple of verses, we see that Jesus gives the kingdom to his saints, just like Daniel 7 said he would. He says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of his confession, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, a lot could be said about these verses. They're they're real head-scratchers. They've caused no small theological debate in the church over the years. Questions of where's the authority and who's Jesus giving this to. And I think it's clear that Jesus is referring to Peter's confession that he's the Christ, saying that the keys of the kingdom have been given to Peter as a representative for all who believe and make that same confession. That's the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. Point being, Jesus here gives the keys of the kingdom to his people in a very Daniel 7 sort of way. But how does he do it? Let's ask further, how does he do it? Well, verse 21, look there. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
How will the Son of Man establish his reign in this world and give the kingdom to his people? Not the way the disciples thought, not the way human reasoning would go. You see in the next verse, verse 22, Peter doesn't get it. Death? Death, and he, it's almost like he forgot about the resurrection part, but just be killed? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Oh, but that's the plan. Jesus, the Son of Man, sacrifices his life to bring the kingdom to his people, to build his church, to establish a rule and a reign on earth, on God's behalf. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's the way God made things before Sin crept in. Here's another way of speaking about the same thing. The death and resurrection of the Son of Man connects heaven and earth. Turn with me to John 1. There's, there's another passage within this point, not just Matthew 16. But John 1, I think, is, is key here. In seeing Jesus as the connection between heaven and earth, you will remember the Tower of Babel was one attempt of trying to get to God. Let's build a tower as big as we possibly can, and maybe from there, from the top, we can just leap into heaven. Of course, that wasn't the way. Not only is it impossible, but God hated that kind of man-made religion. He confounded those people. That's when the, the, the diversity of languages entered this world. God confused them. So how do we get to God? Well, here in John 1, we're picking up in a story of Jesus talking with a guy named Nathaniel. Look at verse 48. Nathaniel said to Jesus, how do you know me? Because Jesus called him by name, but they haven't met yet. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, your brother, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And we don't know what Jesus saw. We don't know what Nathaniel was doing. Maybe he knows he's guilty, he was doing something bad. Maybe not, but, but it's enough for Nathaniel to know Jesus sees things that most human beings don't. So Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, here's the key part, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Why is this significant? Why is this another window or x-ray or MRI into Son of Man and hence a, a picture into who Jesus was or is? Well, that phrase, angels descending and ascending, is an unusual one. And there's something of the Hebrew equivalent back in Genesis 28. Genesis 28 is the story of Maybe you've heard it, Jacob's Ladder, where Jacob has a vision of a ladder that goes all the way up to heaven, and he sees angels descending and ascending on this ladder. It's a connection to God, right? Connecting to heaven. Jesus uses the same kind of imagery, but there's no ladder here. He uses very similar language, angels descending and ascending. But in his retelling of this, he's the ladder. 
He's the ladder. There's no ladder because there's Jesus the ladder. Angels ascending and descending. Hence, he's our only hope. He's our only salvation. He's the only way to God. As Jesus will say two chapters later in John, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And whoever believes in this will have eternal life. There's our hope. Or put maybe more simply, like Paul does in 1 Timothy 2, there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. The God man Christ Jesus. So son of man means that Jesus has supreme authority and brings God's kingdom and he gives it to his people. But it also means that he's a sacrifice. He's a substitute. That he died in our place. He bore our punishment. He took our sins upon himself, bearing that payment upon the cross that he might bring us to God. We have to recognize that sin is the problem. We have to recognize that Jesus and his life and death and resurrection is our only hope. We have to believe and trust that what he says is true. That if we embrace this, if we confess him as Christ, Savior, and Lord, if we recognize our need for the Savior and recognize that he's our only hope, then we'll be saved and restored, reconciled. We serve him. The peoples will serve him, like Daniel 7 said. Maybe you're just starting to see that Jesus, this Jesus thing, isn't a layer deep, is it? It isn't a layer or two deep. This thing's deep. This thing of Jesus and his life, his coming, his life, his dying and being raised and what his people wrote down here on his behalf, this changes everything. According to Revelation, it's Jesus' sacrificial death that was actually the means by which he received this eternal kingdom from God. Listen to Revelation 5. You'll hear language very similar to that in Daniel 7. In Revelation 5, John has his own vision of heaven. And he says, I saw a lamb, that's Jesus, standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. God himself, the Ancient of Days. What's the scroll? The scroll is the deed of the earth. It's the plan of God. He receives the deed. He enacts the plan. Just like in Daniel 7, the kingdom was given to, to the Son of Man. John also sees heaven's praise. He says, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain because you died and not just died in vain but by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation oh do you see those great great commission roots 
In Daniel 7, of all the nations, the peoples, the lands serving him, now John sees it brought to its final culmination. We're not there yet, but one day it'll come. All the nations and peoples, the tribes and languages will recognize that Christ is king and they will be saved and restored to God's worship. He sacrifices his life. But thirdly, Jesus, the Son of Man, will come again. He will come again. Now turn to Revelation 1. There are all kinds of places in the Gospels where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and then he goes on to talk about his second coming, that he will come again after his death and resurrection and ascension, and even after right now, this age we live in now. But Revelation 1 gives us a picture of Jesus' coming as the Son of Man, and it also gives us well, more contours on this picture, uh, more detail to the MRI of who he is and what he came to do. Revelation 1, starting in verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. It's like Daniel 7 says. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. He's coming in judgment. And John says, even so, amen. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then John sees more. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands another version of the throne room of heaven picture that, that was also in Daniel. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now stop there. Daniel 7 saw the Ancient of Days, the Father, with white hair and fire shooting out from the throne. And now John applies that same language here, not to the Ancient of Days, but to the Son of Man, to Jesus himself. Again, there's some kind of distinction in unity we call that, as Christians, the Trinity. There are three persons in one holy Godhead. The language that applies to God the Father equally applies to Jesus here. Wool like snow for hair, his eyes a flame of fire. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. All creation, put it that way. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So he speaks judgment. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In other words, glory. All-consuming glory. And how does John react to this vision of the Son of Man? 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That seems like a reasonable response. And yet amazingly, that verse doesn't end there. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Fear not. You've got to be kidding me. Why not fear? This guy who symbolically is described with bronze feet, white hair, and fire eyes. Fear not, because I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, or hell. I have the keys of death and hell. What you deserve, I hold those keys. I reign there too. And I died. I purchased a people. I purchased a kingdom. I bear God's authority for all the world. I will bring salvation to those who believe and bow. And to others, I will come in judgment again. You see, Matthew 24 talks about the Son of Man, the Son of Man appearing, and and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, not rejoice, because they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Bible talks about Jesus' second coming in two ways. It will either be for your destruction or it will be for your deliverance. It will either be a coming in wrath or it will be a coming in rescue. It will either be judgment, or it will be joy, and eternal joy. What will it be? Have you embraced the Savior? You think him still just a a relic of history? Something we made up? Maybe a historical guy, but who cares? Kind of like the Easter bunny, it really wouldn't matter. You still do the same stuff, whether he's real or not. But not so with Jesus. Jesus is putting this broken world to rights. And that means both rescue and it means retribution. Don't you look out in this broken world and see a world that, that needs judgment? Oh, I know none of us want it for ourselves. But there's plenty of wickedness out there. We say, there's got to be some kind of reckoning at the end. It's in you to know that. It's in you to want that. Oh, okay, we get it wrong sometimes. We want it more than we should, or we want it for the wrong reasons. We, We want it for them and not us. But we want it. We know there's injustice in this world. And it seems like there should be a reckoning at the end. There is. There is. In the meantime, we Christians, we hold out hope to this world. We plead on the Savior's behalf to believe and receive, to enter into the kingdom with us, to confess that he's Christ and he's building his church. And we pray that his kingdom will keep coming. This is what Jesus taught his disciples. Pray like this, your kingdom come 
and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom is coming and his will is done more and more in in little bits here and there as more believe, as more bow, as more follow him and serve him. And yet, it will come not just in incremental steps, but one final step at the end when Jesus comes again. His kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is this Jesus reflected in your Christmas? The Son of Man. The one who comes from the Ancient of Days to enact all God's plan, to bring his reign and rule to this broken world, either in, in, in just salvation and rescue, where he died in our place, or, or in righteous retribution and judgment. In the end, how will you respond to this son of man? Will you live in light of his first and second coming? Will Christ be reflected in this month of Advent like this so that it's not surfacy? It's it's not just one dimension. It's not just a skin test to see if you're healthy, but you x-ray or MRI this whole thing and see this one. This one, the Son of Man. Now, I suspect that within an hour or less, you will not remember many things that I've said this morning. I suspect in a week or two, you will remember even less. A year from now, you may only remember that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, and he does it a lot, that's a big deal, and it doesn't just mean he's just a dude, it's something big. A year from now, we'll all just remember that probably. And that's okay. That's okay. So here's where we get to the specifics of of how this works for us Christians and how we are changed by this reality. Let's just stop right now and marvel. Let's let God's word do its work in our hearts and our minds to draw our thoughts and our affections upward to the risen Christ. The victorious one. The one who alone is worthy. He took the scroll. He has it. He's opening each seal. He has purchased for God a people from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. A multitude which no man can number. Let's just exalt and bow before the ancient of days who honors his son the Son of Man, and the Son of Man who glorifies His Father doing all His will. Let's just feel secure right now in a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let's just just remember as we look around in the, the kingdoms of this world shake and totter or sometimes oppose us, We have a kingdom not of this world. We have a protection greater than any army. Let's just praise the Son of Man, that he's the great ladder between heaven and earth. He connects us to God, and without that, we'd be doomed. Let's just marvel that the glorious Son of Man from the throne room of Daniel 7 
the one of dominion and authority and global praise, he sacrificed his life for us. He was born in humility. He served selflessly. And he died that cruel death upon the cross to bring God's kingdom to bear, to bring God's kingdom to us. So in light of the glory of the Son of Man and the sacrifice of his life and the reality of his kingdom, let us seek first the kingdom of God. Let's seek his kingdom first in all we do. Let's long for and be watchful for his coming again. Let's rejoice that it's a kingdom not of this world and a kingdom which will last forever. It's what we were made for. He's not done yet. There's no kingdom like his kingdom. There's no king like him. And let's just stand in awe of the depths and the layers of God's plan and his man and our Bibles. This thing is not one layer deep. Let's just stand in awe even at what we don't fully understand. That God's at work in deeper, more powerful, more intricate ways than we ever could have imagined. Our calling as Christians is to take all this like it's a a film, like it's an x-ray or if it's an MRI that goes up on the screen and it's an overlay. We take this picture of Christ's first coming and his second coming And we just walk around like this through all of life. We just look through this. This is the lens through which we view everything. It's not a lens for Christmas Sunday or or Christmas Day. It's not a lens for Sunday. It's not a lens for the religious stuff in our lives, like Bible reading and prayer. It's everything. And so often we walk around with it in our back pockets. We forget it. We even go through religious events without thinking about the reality that is Christ in his coming and his second coming and what this changes and what promises are ours. And we miss out. We miss out. Let's pray for his help now. Father, we ask for your help to see to see the invisible, to believe, to believe that Christ, you came to set your people free, you came to bring strength and consolation, you came to bring and to be hope to all the earth, be our desire, our joy, give us a longing heart for You're coming again, Lord Jesus. Help us, like Peter says, to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed at Christ's second coming, your second coming, Lord Jesus. Help us now as we sing to rule in our hearts, Lord, to show your lordship and your worship in the salvation of our souls as we thank you for your coming and for you coming again. Amen.